strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello, come in. Welcome to my study. Please, have a seat. I see you admiring the many books on the shelves around you. Even to fleetingly acquaint yourself with every volume would be a lifetime's work. One to which I devote myself every day and, of course, night. The gentleman to my right is my valet, Wilkinson. He assists in this venture by reading passages from these books in cases of direct quotation. I've chosen him thanks to the particularly lovely, rich quality of his voice. Have you ever stopped to count all the books in this library, Wilkinson? Can you even guess how many? It would be hard to estimate, sir. You know, we should count them. Aloud. In French. It would be excellent practice. Uh, didn't you say you needed practice? I am a bit rusty. Or Portuguese. That might be more interesting. A bit more challenging. I would have to first learn Portuguese, uh, then... I would communicate the essentials to you, and then we could begin counting. Uh, meals would need to be laid in in advance so we didn't stop and lose our place, and of course we'd need some sort of refrigeration here for food, uh, perhaps some amphetamine to keep us going since we really have no idea how long it would take. Not knowing the number of books, it would be hard to estimate the time required, and it might be slower with Portuguese. I'm thinking we just stick to French. Amphetamines can scatter the thoughts, and the extra challenge of Portuguese it could just push us over the edge. Uh, we don't need that. No, sir. <laughs> Simplifying the process might be good. Probably kill each other and damage the books. Well, it's a dream anyway. A hero's task. But, uh, still worth considering. Um, perhaps I'll just let you tend to it. It was you needing the practice in French, after all. Yes, sir. French or English. I could take care of it either way. Well, enough of that for now. We do have a topic to present. Let's get on with it. Episode 4, Crowley in Neverland. For those who haven't tuned in before, I am your host, Al Reidenauer. Our topic, as you'll deduce from our show listings, is the intertwining of folklore with the horror genre, uh, sometimes including a bit of cultural history. Yeah, I started all this as a way to expand upon material related to my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, as well as topics I'm researching for a new book along similar lines. Now, you may be wondering about our title for this episode, or how we're getting the occultist Aleister Crowley to Peter Pan's Neverland, or Neverland to Crowley. What the two share in common in this case is 
their connection to the ancient god Pan. This show is the first of two that will discuss how Pan was known to the ancient Greek and Roman world and to the centuries following. Along the way, we'll meet some very odd people and even a contemporary monster of urban legend. I suppose one of the first things I should address and what you may be expecting to hear about in a horror-oriented show is uh, Guillermo del Toro's 2005 film Pan's Labyrinth. So I won't really be discussing that film, splendid though it is, because I'm more interested here, as always, in sharing with you things a bit more rare and difficult to find on your own. It should also be noted that the original Spanish title of the film, El Labyrintino del Fauno, merely refers to it as the Fawn's Labyrinth, and del Toro has been quoted explicitly saying that the film has nothing to do with Pan himself. So, first some basic housekeeping, a review of the actual classical mythology. Pan is usually said to be the son of Hermes, but sometimes it's Zeus or Dionysus. Uh, it's generally agreed his mother was a wood nymph, and he was regarded, at least originally, as a pastoral god, or one attached to the world of shepherds and goat herds. Because his goat-like features didn't quite fit the Olympian model of beauty, he's said to have left Mount Olympus to live in Arcadia. Arcadia is a central area in the Peloponnese, the southern peninsula of Greece, but it's been generalized to mean a sort of harmonious pastoral world. In any case, Pan strictly associated with wild rural regions. Uh, probably the best-known story associated with Pan explains the origin of the Pan flute, or Pan pipes, as related to a water nymph by the name of Syrinx, with whom Pan was enamored. Now, this love, sadly, was not reciprocated, and in escaping Pan and fleeing into a river, Syrinx transformed herself into a reed. Not knowing which reed she had become, the unfortunate suitor collected seven of them in the vicinity of her disappearance and uh, fashioned them into a set of pipes as a sort of sad consolation. Along with the pan pipes and the other well-known visual signifiers, the horns and the goat legs, there was another attribute by which pan was recognized in the ancient world, uh, one that is usually censored in modern representations and that is, uh, namely, Pan's very ample and erect phallus. This uh, sexual aspect of Pan originally was not necessarily understood as negative or predatory, but was related to his role as a sort of protector or patron of uh, shepherds, so something taken more as a symbol of successful animal husbandry or fertility in the flocks at least originally. Uh, later stories make clear that Pan was an aggressive sexual adventurer, and we know that uh, worship of Pan, like that of Dionysus, could include drinking and orgiastic abandon. But it wasn't all fun and games. Pan was also known for some threatening traits. His name gives rise to our word for panic, as it's said that uh, should he be awakened during his regular noontime siesta, he would give a terrific shout that would cause flocks to panic and scatter, or worse. 
uh, said provoker of panic. He was said to have aided the Greeks at the Battle of Marathon by causing panic and confusion among the Persians. The last story of Pan, which has contributed to his more modern devilish persona, is that of his death. We're never told the reason for his death, only this, that from the island of Paxi, a voice calls out, charging a particular seaman, Thamus, on a ship off the coast, to make the announcement when they approach the island of Pelides, that Great Pan is dead. There is much confusion and debate on board, but as they near the island, uh, Plutarch records, Thamos, from the stern, looking toward the land, said the words as he had heard them, Great Pan is dead. Even before he had finished, there was a great cry of lamentation, not of one person, but of many, mingled with exclamations of amazement. The news spreads and is taken seriously enough that Tiberius Caesar is said to have made an official investigation of the matter. Church historian Eusebius of Caesarea Uh, Noting that Tiberius reigns during the birth of Christ equates this announcement with the defeat and death of the entire pagan world, noting that Pan's name, while likely derived from the Greek word for pastoral, has also been taken by Homer and others to be related to the word all, as in pandemic or panorama, making Pan a sort of universal embodiment for all the pagan pantheon, and culture. As the demonization of the pagan world progressed, it's been assumed that Pan served as the prototype for the iconography of, well, you guessed it, Satan. Sorry, that's a bit much. Uh, So, around the beginning of the ninth century, we begin seeing Images of a pan-like sea. I acknowledge thee as my god and prince. Just, I promise just keep say, looping. Sorry. I've been having strange problems all week. Okay. One. Oh, yeah. Wait. How? That's spooky. Something else to fix. Uh. So uh, around the beginning of the ninth century, we begin seeing images of a pan-like. Satan, but uh, not far from an exclusive style of representation. And the demonology and witchcraft scholar Ronald Hutton points out that uh, there are other styles in which he's portrayed, uh, not resembling Pan, uh, attributes such as clawed feet, bat wings, or dragon-like figures are also quite common. Uh, he believes the association has more to do with this Victorian and Edwardian uh, association I spoke of earlier, making Pan evil. Jesus. Now, while Pan is being embraced by these Victorian artists and writers as a sort of metaphor for man's baser instincts, uh, and we'll see all that shortly, uh, There are those during that same period who turn to him not so much as a metaphor, but as a genuine supernatural entity, like everyone's favorite antichrist, Aleister Crowley. Crowley composed his 
him to Pan while staying in Moscow in 1913, later declaring it the most powerful enchantment ever written. Part of the power of the hymn, Crowley believed, was in the actual vocalization, in the sound of the words themselves and their correct and emphatic articulation. In particular, in the word eo, or the phrase eo pan, which is used as a refrain. Eo, as Crowley points out, uh, providing an example from Sophocles, is a Greek word which means something like come, but is used specifically in invocations as a means of summoning the deity. You can hear how this was intoned in a recording I'm about to play for you. Uh, this is a recording made during an actual ceremony of New York's Tahuti Lodge, where followers of Crowley and his religion of Thelema are gathered uh, for a winter solstice ritual in 1987. Now, a recording of an actual Thelemic rite is a rare thing, and some might say it belongs only within that particular controlled context. And as the most powerful enchantment ever written, I almost hesitate to put this out over the air, but those who wish can always uh, skip ahead. Uh, Wilkinson, I'm going to play the Crowley clip. Yes, sir. Do I need to do anything in particular on this? Uh, no, I'm just letting you know, you know. Very good, sir. So, uh, if you'd like to be excused, I can just let you know when it's over. That won't be necessary, sir. No? Really? Well, before you decide that, why don't you look up above you, directly over your head? You see that crack in the ceiling? Ah, to the right of the light fixture. That appeared the afternoon I first discovered this clip. I only played part of it, really only five seconds, and when I looked up, that had suddenly appeared. I believe that's a spiderweb, sir. I brush them away around the lamp two or three times a year. Well, you should be cleaning better. I'm going to play the clip. a bit of it. Okay, in uh, 1910, uh, Crowley's acolyte Victor Neuberg had uh, previously published a very Crowley-esque collection of homoerotic poems called The Triumph of Pan, and some say uh, Crowley's hymn was a response to these, but it's more likely an outgrowth of the uh, Pan workings undertaken by Crowley and Neuberg in Paris in 1913. This consisted of three and a half weeks of magical rites and or sexual and sadomasochistic acts intended to invoke Pan, Jupiter, and Hermes. Uh, another acolyte of the great beast, the 
Aeronautics engineer and magician Jack Parsons was also said to invoke Pan uh, using uh, Crowley's hymn during his work with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, to bless his test rockets before igniting them. The hymn to Pan was important enough to Crowley that he requested it be read at his funeral. Uh, his longtime friend, the poet Lewis Wilkinson, intoned the invocation as part of the immolation ceremony on December 5th, 1947 at the Brighton Crematorium. And the journalists covering the service referred to it as a black mass. Uh, and the scandal that the whole thing caused resulted in the Brighton Council subsequently announcing... We shall take all the necessary steps to prevent such an incident occurring again. So, around this same time, new ideas were forming around the idea of a horned god, and figures emerged to bridge the gap between the old occult revival of the Victorians and a new sort of neo-paganism, or Wicca, this movement sought to define itself against the old guard, against Crowley, who had been all too ready to be an antichrist or bear the moniker the wickedest man in the world. Uh, Pan had served that era as the ideal symbol of sexual license and evil, but for the more conservative witches, Pan had become tainted with all this flashy association with Satan. Much of this begins with the anthropologist Margaret Murray in her 1921 book, The Witch Cult in Western Europe, which made the now generally dismissed claim that witchcraft represented an organized religion of great antiquity, uh, which had covertly persisted into the Christian era. British figures like Gerald Gardner, who knew Crowley, but uh, assumed a leading role in the birth of this new thing of Wicca, um, relied on theories like this, of this undying continuity of witchcraft practice, because he drew his authority from the claim that in 1939 he had been initiated into an ancient coven, which had been long practicing in southern England's new forest. Now, the pan of classical antiquity suddenly seemed a much less uh, serviceable figurehead for this old religion, as it had come to be called, Something more British was called for. And thankfully, Margaret Murray, in her 1931 book, The God of the Witches, had placed the Celtic god Cernunnos alongside Pan as a contender. Uh, while there was no evidence really that Cernunnos was worshipped by the Celts in Britain, he was Celtic, and Murray also connected him with the uh, island's homegrown mythology of Hearn the Hunter, as the two were both represented with the horns of a stag. This new, more British look for the horned god has overtaken that of Pan in contemporary Wicca. Gone is the embarrassing erect phallus, as are the associations with the more goat-like devil of Christian conception. All that satanic baggage the movement has been so desperate to shake. So, in this small and sad way, perhaps, the great god Pan has died again. Or perhaps not. 
I see that in 2016, a man in the town of Millinocket, Maine, going by the name Felon Moonsong, and Felon is spelled with a P-H, and not uh, Felon as in convict, criminal, uh, claimed to be a priest of Pan. He uh, made his way into the news shortly after officially changing his name to Moonsong, and the new name, it seems, called for a new photo ID, and according to my report, when he showed up for his photograph wearing a pair of goat horns, which apparently had been part of his daily wardrobe for a decade or so, there was some consternation among the bureaucrats. Uh, claiming that the horns were religious headwear, he succeeded in convincing them to snap his photo with headgear in place, but uh, was required to appeal to the Secretary of State for permission to actually use the photo IDs. Um, after providing the secretary with a personal essay as to how and why the horns served this purpose, along with supporting citations from various books on paganism, and perhaps more importantly, a bit of involvement with the uh, Maine Civil Liberties Union, he was, in fact, granted permission. You can see this photo ID, along with a shot of Moonsong in full pan regalia on the Bone and Sickle website, along with other notes and images, media, related to this episode. So, the literary pan. We see some interest in the Romantic era in the poetry of Keats, Swinburne, and Shelley, but it's more of uh, an elegiac nature, lamenting the loss of an imagined past and gently advocating for the beauties of a mythical pastoral existence which Pan represents for them. Um, this image is soon largely replaced by the more threatening Pan, such as that of Arthur Mackham's landmark horror novel, The Great God Pan, which we'll treat next episode. But the benevolent pastoral Pan can still be found in the Edwardian era, most notably in his incongruous yet important appearance in Kenneth Graham's 1908 children's novel, The Wind in the Willows. And on the cover of the first edition, a nice image which I'll post on the website. It appears midway through the novel in the chapter, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, as the characters Rat and Mouse are searching for Otter's missing son in a boat making its way down the Thames. As night passes into dawn, they find themselves entranced by mysterious music leading them to an uncanny encounter with a supernatural figure not named as Pan, but in all details described as such and holding a set of Pan pipes lest there remain any doubt. Though Pan's function in the novel is to deliver up the missing otter child, the character transcends that of a simple protector. Um, he inspires a sort of dreadful religious awe in Mole and Rat. Uh, Graham writes, The two animals crouched to the earth, bowed their heads, and did worship. And the language of the chapter is rich with the language of transcendental mysticism, reading almost like a journal documenting a psychedelic experience. Then suddenly, the mole felt a great awe fall upon him. An awe that turned his muscles to water, wrapped, trembling, 
transported, breathless and transfixed, bowed his head. He saw the tears on his comrade's cheek, the tears on, of incredible fullness seemed to hold transported, bowed his head and understood. But it was an awe that smote him and held him. Was it a dream, right? It was like a dream, and yet not quite. Not surprisingly, this chapter resonated with uh, creative types in the psychedelic era, notably Sid Barrett, who used it for his 1967 premiere album for the band Pink Floyd as the title, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. So, what exactly turned Kenneth Graham pagan? Or at least, what caused him to insert this fantasy of pan worship into an otherwise normal children's book documenting the rather cozy bourgeois lives of cute little anthropomorphic animals living along the Thames? Well, Graham's life was not particularly a happy one. Though married, some scholars point to evidence suggesting he struggled against homosexual urges. Uh, his son, Alistair, nicknamed Mouse, for whom he wrote the book based on bedtime stories he would tell the child, he was born blind in one eye and was tormented by health problems throughout his brief life. At the age of 20, the unhealthy youth committed suicide by throwing himself in front of an oncoming train. Perhaps it's not surprising that the sort of devotional longing expressed in this representation of Pan was already present in Graham's uh, very first published work, an 1891 essay entitled The Rural Pan, an April Essay, which in 1893 was included in an expanded reflection on the topic, his first book called The Pagan Papers. Graham was hardly alone in this yearning for an imaginary pagan past. In 1881, Robert Louis Stevenson, author of another children's classic, Treasure Island, wishfully imagined the resurrection of a pre-Christian utopia, writing in his essay, Pan's Pipes, Pan is not dead, but of all the classical hierarchy, alone survives in triumph. But... There's still more escapism, more misery in the world of children's book authors. Uh, that of James Matthew or J.M. Barry, creator of Peter, Peter Pan. Pan and Tinkerbell. Come on, Wendy. I'm taking you to Neverland. Uh, the character originates in the 1902 book, The Little White Bird, and is then refined in the 1906 uh, Peter Pan in Kensington Garden, in which the character pays homage to his pagan namesake by riding a goat around the gardens and playing panpipes. The most famous and familiar version of the character is from Peter Pan or The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up, Barry's 1904 play. Now, this idealization of the unspoiled Neverland past of childhood, as in Peter Pan, often went hand-in-hand hand with the idealization of civilization's past, its classical golden age and its pagan gods, and 
All this went alongside the idealization of unspoiled nature embodied in Pan. Graham, in 1895, even published a collection of childhood stories called The Golden Age, equating children with uh, the ancient Greeks. Now, not all childhoods touched by the spirit of ancient Greece were the same. A uh, friend to many listeners of this show, H.P. Lovecraft, also wrote of his attraction to ancient religion, and in particular that of ancient Greece, in his 1919 essay, Idealism and Materialism, A Reflection, in which he recalls his own childhood doubts regarding the Christian faith of his parents and the appeal of exotic mythologies, describing, in the third person, uh, his evolution. Then, at an age not much above six, he stumbled on the legends of Greece and became a sincere and enthusiastic classical pagan. Unlearned in science, and reading of the Greco-Roman Lord Hand, he was until the age of eight a rapt devotee of the old gods, building altars to Pan and Apollo, Athena and Artemis, and benevolent Saturnus, who ruled the world in the Golden Age. And at times this belief was very real indeed. There are vivid memories of the fields and groves at twilight when the now materialistic mind that dictates these lines knew absolutely that the ancient gods were true. But back to Peter Pan and the miserable, some might even say cursed, life of the writer who likely wished he'd never grown up. First, sprinkle him with a little pixie dust, Tink. <gasps> Barry's Pan stories grew out of stories told to children, but not his own. Barry's marriage to actress... Mary Ansell was plagued by her brazenly public infidelity, ending in what was then the scandal of divorce. And having no children, Barry rather curiously inserted himself into a neighbor's family, that of Arthur and Sylvia Llewellyn Davies, after meeting two of their five boys while walking his dog in Kensington Garden. Mr. Llewellyn Davies, uh, who had never quite trusted Barry, died in 1907, after which Uncle Jim, as they called him, became more involved in the family. Wife Sylvia died three years later, leaving Barry as caretaker of the boys. Their son George died as a soldier in the Great War in 1915, and Michael died through drowning in 1921. Well, many have had their doubts about the unmarried man's close relationship to the Llewellyn Davies boys. In later years, the youngest of these, uh, Nicholas or Nico, defended their caretaker, saying, I don't believe that Uncle Jim ever experienced what one might call a stirring in the undergrowth for anyone, man, woman, or child. It certainly shed some light on the whole never-growing-up motif. Most significant of all would seem to be the death of Barry's own brother, David, through a skating accident on the day before the child's 14th birthday. David had been his mother's favorite, and Barry quite literally attempted to assume that role after the death by donning his dead brother's clothing and walking about whistling tunes David was known to whistle. But, all to no avail, 
David had become even more idealized in death, with his mother consoling herself, as Barry later reported, with the fact that David would forever remain a boy and never grow up to leave her. So, there you have it, the tragic life of the man who longed for Neverland, a life entangled with ghosts of those he could not keep. Or, as D.H. Lawrence rather succinctly summed it up, J.M. has a fatal touch for those he loves. They die. You can fly, you can fly, you can fly. And out the window they flew, off to Neverland. Now, I realize we may have perhaps gone a little heavy on the literary or cultural history in this episode. Uh, to provide the requisite horror, I'm ending with a somewhat related story of a monster, a goat man, said to terrorize the curiously named town of Pope Lick near Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, we generally approach such things from more of a folkloric angle, avoiding the paranormalists, ghost and Bigfoot hunter approach to things and all the frustration and disappointment this can involve, but it's a good urban legend and suitably creepy. It should be noted there are goatmen reported in other states and an especially well-known one also in Maryland. The new snippets you will hear are all authentic, though I've taken some liberties with uh, a more atmospheric remix. A woman's search for thrills ends in tragedy. Raquel Bain of Dayton, Ohio, was hit and killed by a train last night near South Popelick Road. And Sharon, what were the couple looking for there? They made a stop at the trestles near South Popelick Road to check out the myth of the goat man. Today, I spoke with people in the area who told me this myth has taken the lives of many people over the years. This is uh, the old trestle for the Northern Suffolk Railway. This is said to be the home of the Pope Lick monster. The goat man of Pope Lick, as he's known, is a hybrid creature. They say he's part man, part goat, maybe even part sheep. The goat man, if you climb up on the trestles and they cross it, and he's supposed to come out when they cross the trestle. He's a creature and he does all kinds of things to trick you into going up uh, onto the trestle. It looked like a human with some horns or something to mimic uh, the voice of children who are crying for help. It was like big, white, and had red eyes, and I just stood there and started looking at it. There is a deadly choice. Another popular legend to explain the evil. A circus train was uh, crossing the trestle one day, and it derailed. And in one of the cars, there was a, a kind of circus freak. Goatman arose as a, um, a tale after a local farmer back in the day uh, tortured a herd of goats for Satan and signed a contract with him and forfeited his soul. And a deal with the devil. The process was converted into this terrible uh, creature that uh, was sent to live under the trestle and seek its revenge on people. And uh, they used to find bodies quite frequently there, maybe once a week or even more. Satan, 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 our Lord and Master. Says she can only hope people will give it a second thought before they make the last decision of their lives. 
You've been listening to Bone and Sickle with me, your host, Al Reitenauer. I do hope everyone's been enjoying the show and will continue listening. Uh, Shows are uploaded on Mondays every other week. You can find listings for upcoming episodes through June on our website, boneandsickle.com, all one word and no ampersand, um, along with show notes and images and video of the topics I mentioned in the episode. You will also find links to our Facebook group and Twitter account. Thanks to all who recently joined those. And uh, I look forward to communicating with you if you can join us on one of those. Uh, We also have a Patreon link where you can donate to support this rather laborious undertaking. Uh, Patreon members have a choice of gifts and incentives, including access to extra bits of the podcast, uh, the soundtrack under the narration, uh, book downloads, uh, a signed glamour shot of our friend Wilkinson suitable for framing, and other things. And a heartfelt thanks to our recent donors, Ian Lovecraft, Ross Otto, Chris Glue, Freaky Fandoms Podcast, uh, Andrew and Deborah Hawkins, and Kevin I. Slaughter. I would love to get your comments on anything you liked, questions you had, uh, suggestions for topics, anything like that. And you can contact us via our website, Facebook, or Twitter. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer, and Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. Thanks so much for listening. Satan, Satan, our Lord and Master. (laughs) 